All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Job. We're going to begin at the end of chapter 6. Um, I want to pick up some of what Job is saying in response to Eliphaz. Um, I want you to remember what Eliphaz has said. Remember, Eliphaz came to Job gently, right? He, he did say to him, he said, I don't, I don't want to hurt you any more than you're hurting, but somebody's got to say something. And remember, part of the issue for Eliphaz was that what Job was suggesting was actually confronting even his views of God. And so he was wrestling with, how do I reconcile what you're going through? How do I reconcile someone I love, someone I care for, going through this much hurt? How do I help tidy it up? And we confess that we do that sometimes, don't we? That when we see others hurting, it's a good thing that we would want to speak into it. It's a good thing that we would want to help reconcile it. But we have to be so careful in how we step into it because we can bring with us a host of just kind of one-sided, singular, mechanistic answers. And really what we're oftentimes trying to do is tidy it up because we don't want to have to deal with it and we don't want to have to answer for it. Let me be confessional to you. I, as pastor, struggle with this probably more than any of you do, not because I'm greater, but because I have to hear more stories of how broken things are. In fact, there's a number of people, even here today, that you don't know what they're going through. And I don't know what all of you are going through, but I know what some of you are going through, and I'm very, very aware of how my words may land on you. And trust me, I tremble because I am constantly aware of, I don't want to write checks that God can't cash. Now that sounds weird because God's sovereign, but I don't want to say something of the Lord that ultimately is not true and cause you to be led astray. And that is critical, isn't it? As I ascend the hill here. And so I oftentimes hear things and I just turn to the Lord and I go, why? Why would you, why now? Why would you do this to them? Is that sin for me to do that? I certainly hope not. And, I, and it's not sin for you either. And I'm going to say something here that's going to sound fairly provocative to you, so, but hang tight. Don't get tangled up in trying to, to deal with all the extraneous circumstances with what I'm about to say. We'll, we'll balance it. But I have a question. Is anger ever an appropriate aspect of your worship? All right, let me, let me hold that for a second because you're thinking, oh man, this sounds like a trap. And it's not. Let me ask you, you who are created in God's image, does the Lord ever get angry? What, what is it that makes the Lord angry? When we sing songs in the wrong key, you think he's up there going, I can't. Why would they set Psalm 8 to Amazing Grace? It was a Scottish hymn, and it was, it was really complex. Why wouldn't they just do that? I made it complex. Why can't they just be complex? Amazing Grace, really? Do you think God is wringing his hands when, when, when and, he, and he gets angry when we don't do certain things that we make into these giant things that would split churches in half? No, what makes him angry is that we would make such a big thing out of something so small sometimes. Does God care about how he's worshiped? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what makes God angry is for his people to be separated from him by sin. What makes him angry is for him to see families blown apart by their lack of commitment to covenant. What makes him angry is that your mind would be broken and, and turned into this, this biochemical mess 
That makes him angry that his creation is turned into something other than what he intended by the fall. It makes him angry that there's an organization who would buy and sell parts. It makes him angry that a child could wash up on a shore and suddenly we get angry. Never mind children have been being killed in Syria for years. Suddenly we care because now we've been confronted. It makes him angry that we are so unwilling to look into the darkness and carry the light as ambassadors of reconciliation. So if you who are created in God's image, who doesn't have all of his abilities, I understand mutability and immutability, save it. But anger's not immutable. In fact, he says something very interesting that we're gonna, we read in 1 Peter, be ye holy for I am holy. And in his holiness, he is angry when there is something that is off from that. When his glory is being destroyed or detracted from by our sin, that makes him angry. Is he in sin? Is God sinful for getting angry at these things? Let me read you a verse from Ephesians 4, 26 through 27, which is actually a quotation from a psalm. So both Old and New Testament say this. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, oftentimes, what do we quote that with? Where do we like to quote that? In marriage conferences and stuff like that, right? We like to, but what's interesting is where in Ephesians does he actually start talking about marriage? Chapter five, midway, almost an entire chapter away. See, he is talking about us who should be awake enough to see that there are things that are worthy of us getting angry about. And if we try to cut it off from our worship, we are being patently and utterly unbiblical. If we as a church never sing laments, if we as a church never grapple with the suffering that our people go through, we are... It's ridiculous. It's not true. No wonder no one turns to us. We're just trying to whistle past the graveyard and act like everything's fine. While all around us, people are drowning. Would that we could become honest. Would that we could give vent properly, not in sin, to our anger. And maybe you're thinking, well, Cameron, you're kind of halfway an angry dude. So, I mean, I think you're just trying to push your own agenda here. Did you hear it from Scripture? And when it is that I drift into sin, I hope that you would come to me and say, I think you've gone too far, Pastor. And may that I would repent and pull back and say, you're right. My wife is very good at this. There's times where she comes to me and says, you know what? I love you. And I want to say first, you didn't cross the line, but your toes were all over that sucker. And so be careful that you don't let your anger pour out on the sheep. Now, our anger is not to be turned on one another. Our anger is to be rightly oriented. And when we take it to God as an aspect of our worship, it is saying to him, Lord, I know that you have the power and the ability to change that which I see and I cannot change. Praise God. Praise God that we have a place where we could go and be honest. And it ought to be here. And so as we look at Job, and Job is beginning to get angry, 
It's going to push our limits, isn't it? I've already had some of you say, how, how did Job not sin in chapter 3 saying some of that stuff? How was that not sin for him to curse the day of his birth and say, why didn't you just kill me? I'd rather be dead. What's Job pushing against? He's saying, if life is meaningless, if suffering is for nothing, then I would rather not be born. You know what God says to that? Good, you're right. If it were meaningless, it would be better that you had never been created. If it were for nothing, then it would be better that you had died at your birth. That's honest. That's good theology, actually. Why would we think that we should take meaningless as if we are stoics and, and unfeeling? It's just not the way the gospel works, is it? And so, as we walk through this, I know there are some ways in which you're wrestling with what I have said about anger and worship. And let's, let's have a conversation about that because that's probably a fairly new concept to us, isn't it? And that being the case, don't go practicing it. Don't say, I'm going to read angry next week and see if Cameron likes that. I'm going to sing angry. I'm going to get right behind him, get right in his ear and yell the words to the, the song and see if he likes that. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Let, let's, let's process this. This is something that will help us to grow. It's, it's an equipping of us, the saints, that we see here because Job's going to get angry. And if we don't read his words angry, then we're missing the point. Now, let me also say that some of you, and remind us, the book of Job is, is very difficult in the sense that we all bring baggage to the book, don't we? And so we read every ounce of it through these, these distorted lenses. I'm sarcastic, if you haven't figured that out sometimes. And, and so sometimes I read this stuff, I'm like, dude's being sarcastic. I'm reading how I would say it. But I have to be very careful because sarcasm is not necessarily a Hebrew aspect of poetry. There are times when it's juxtaposed, but not often. The Hebrew poets weren't like beat poets and, and Kerouac and all that stuff. They're not, they're not like riffing. It's not Saturday Night Live. It's, it's God's word. And so we must approach it with great care and carefulness and confess and admit where we bring baggage. And so if there's something that you're reading that you're going, I don't understand this, let's talk about, that's why we have community. Let's wrestle with it. Let's talk about it. And so thus begins some of the things that Job's going to say that's going to cause us to pause and wonder, what's, what's he saying here? Let's not forget what Eliphaz has just said because of Job's words in three, Eliphaz begins to speak and he challenges Job and remember what was the fundamental theology that Eliphaz brought to the table. It was a retribution theology. It was mechanistic. He said, as I look at your suffering, the only conclusion I can come to is that you must have done something wrong. You must have sinned. And if you would just confess it, everything would go back to normal. But remember the problem with that. If Job isn't guilty, should he confess? Is that good theology to admit to something you didn't do so you can just get back to where you were? No, you're actually in legion with Satan when he said, does Job fear God for nothing? All he cares about is the stuff he's got, and he'll do whatever it takes. If you take it away from him to get it back, he'll curse you to your face if necessary. And so for Job to confess to something he didn't do in order to get back that which he has lost, he is doing exactly what Satan said he would do. This is why Job is so vehement in arguing for his righteousness. It's also why we as Reformed people struggle with his argument for righteousness because we can't get past T, total depravity. 
Like, Job, you filthy animal, how could you ever argue for your righteousness? Might I remind you, how did God, who is sovereign, describe him? He described him as righteous. It's not perfect, by the way. And Job doesn't even argue that he's perfect. He says, I I mess up, and I've tried to do everything I can to keep the, the ledger square. So he's fighting for his righteousness in a very righteous way, which is hard for us to understand because when we do it, we we charge each other with arrogance and pride. Sometimes it's accurate. Sometimes it's not. And so Eliphaz says, you must have done something. You need to give us up. And remember how he does it. He says, "And, and let me tell you something. I had a dream. I had a religious experience. And you can't argue with that, by the way, my religious experience. And so I had a dream, and it was freaky, and I, I don't know what it was all about, but can man be right before God? And remember, he gives this whole dissertation, which if you think about it, is contra Psalm 8. He says, what is man that God would care about him at all? In fact, he don't even trust his angels. Remember, God does trust his angels because he listened to them as they gave reports in chapters 1 and 2. And so Eliphaz got his theology wrong about humanity. He was reductionistic and said we were meaningless before God. Does that sound like the gospel to you? Not at all. And so Eliphaz builds this pyramid on sand. His foundation is destroyed before he can even start. And which is why you will notice if you go on to read Eliphaz, we're not going to cover him in the sermon series, but Eliphaz's other two arguments, he becomes more and more shrill. He doesn't say anything different. He just gets more shrill as he goes because he is convinced that Job must have done something wrong. And he can't take Job pushing back on him and saying, what about you? And so Eliphaz has done all of this in this unbiblical way, and now Job is going to respond. We didn't, we're not going to read the first aspect of his response that you can do in your own time. <laughs> I do want to pick it up in verse 24. So if you would, hear God's word this morning as we read Job 6, 24 through 30. He's responding specifically to Eliphaz. He says, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words, but what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. But now, be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn, let no injustice be done. Turn now, my vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? Let's unpack what Job is saying here. First off, he's not, he's not challenging Eliphaz sarcastically. He is a genuine man of righteousness. He's saying, listen, if you know that I've done something wrong, don't come at me and say, you must have done something wrong. I don't know what it is because that's not helpful, right? How good is it for someone to come to you as a counselor and say, I've received a word from the Lord. I don't know what your problem is, but you need to get it right. Is that helpful to you? That's like shooting fish in a barrel. That's like doing horoscopes. We've all, we messed up today. We're going to mess up tomorrow. We messed up yesterday. So that's just easy. Somebody comes to you, that's just easy. Quote Job and say, well, teach me what it is. You know so much. So Job is opening his hands and saying, look, if you, if you have seen what I have done wrong, then I will gladly receive it. 
I will, I will repent of it, what you know to be specific. But here's the problem. Your words, they're all very forceful. But what do they actually reprove? They're just general theology kind of cast out into the air. They don't actually land on anything. I need substantive. Be honest with me if you are my friend. So Job is calling for them to show him his error so that he can correct it. He's actually submitting himself and being humble. Now, I would say to you, we need to be this way with one another. What's usually when someone comes to you and says, hey, or someone, if I were to grab you and say, hey, uh, I need to talk to you. What immediately do you think? If I did it in that time, hey, I need to talk to you today. You think I'm going to ask you to uh, give money to my car wash? Or, or do you think, no, Cameron's, uh-oh. And you start trying to run through and cataloging here, what have I done? What have I done so that I, so that I can repent? No, you're saying, what have I done so I can defend myself? We all, every single one of us, immediately go on the defensive. So one thing that we could learn from Job is how to, in humility, respond when we are confronted. If someone has enough courage to confront us, which many of us do not, by the way, and which is why we do it so badly when we do it. Oftentimes, because we're so bad at actually loving and caring for one another, by the time we actually get enough gumption to say something to someone, it comes out all sideways, doesn't it? And it feels more like an attack than love. I'm guilty. I'm guilty particularly with my daughter. I'm guilty with my son. As a parent, I've been very guilty of this. And I've repented of it. But here's the thing. We ought to have this kind of posture if we truly care for one another. And our true concern is the glory of the Lord and not our own. Because remember, you have already been as glorified in union with Christ as you're ever going to be. There's no greater glory for you. It doesn't get better. It's already best. And we would do good to remember that, which gives us a liberty when someone comes to us in love for us to say, how can I get to the place where I can better glorify the Lord my God with my life? Even if you walk away saying what Job says, your words don't actually land on me. You're not actually saying anything of substance. And he says, he says and how is it that you think you can actually reprove me when you have already disregarded my words? He's saying, you've already suggested that my words are but wind. I'm a windbag to you. Why are you going? You're not here to listen to me. You're here to control me. Now, for those of you who have the opportunity to confront someone or to lovingly engage someone in something, remember this. Job is saying, you're not here to listen. You've already determined that I am, my words are meaningless. Are we not guilty of this? How often are we just like, eh, eh, I don't want to hear all that. And we dismiss their humanity as if we could lord it over them, as if we were God. So he's saying, you, you've already dismissed me. And then he goes on to say, this, and this is one of the harder aspects of the text. He says, you would even cast lots over the fatherless. He's saying, you would attack those who are weak. You would kick a man while he's down. Have we done that sometimes to the people we love? Have we, have we done that to someone who was caught in sin and could have used 
more grace and mercy and love than, than sternness and reproof and iron-fistedness. Have we kicked anyone when they were down? I'm afraid we probably have. And of that, we can repent and praise God that we too can be restored, though we have done this. And so Job is saying, you've kicked me when I was down. And then he says this, is, this is interesting. He goes, and this is not sarcastic, but it is a little bit of a play. He's saying, you say I need to repent. Why don't you repent? Repent, turn, and look at me. Look me in the eye as you say what you're saying. Which tells us that Eliphaz, instead of coming directly to Job, probably stood somewhat sideways. Because he couldn't even look at him. Think about what he would see, how broken a man Job was, festering with sores and covered in ashes, torn and broken. Would he have been easy to look upon? No. So he's saying, if you're going to say words of such great weight, turn and look me in the eye as you say what you're saying. And you tell me, do you see any injustice in me? Give me the substance. Don't give me these riddles. How often do we do that? Because we don't really want to, we don't really want to engage, so we kind of stick our toe in the water by giving someone some biblical riddle, like some just odd statement, or you know, just like, hey, I'm just gonna leave this here. I don't wanna, I don't wanna get involved in anything. I just wanna leave, I'm just gonna send you a, you know, it's like like I've said before, I, I would respect people sending critique if if they would take the time to cut out the different letters and do like the ransom note, the old ransom note. Like if you put that much effort into it, you can remain anonymous. If you don't put that much effort into it, you better sign your name to it. And so, so he's saying, don't, don't, just, don't just leave it here and walk away. Look me in the eye. Recognize my humanity as I struggle and I suffer. And he's saying, Is it, it, do I not have the ability to know that I have sinned given my, my history? Are you su suggesting that I could not know what I have done? So in this, listen to what William Henry Green, Puritan, says. He says, Job was in utter darkness and perplexity. And he was unable to apprehend the reasons of the dispensation of his suffering. And the only solution that offered itself and towards which he was persistently driven by antagonism to the inadmissible position urged upon him by his friends was not reconcilable with the goodness or the justice of God. So what William Henry Green is saying, Job couldn't repent because there was nothing to repent of. It would be unjust for him to say, yeah, what, whatever, whatever I've done, Lord, whatever it takes for you to leave me alone, just, just take it and go. Give me back what's mine. Let's all just go back to square one. Instead of receiving the sanctifying work of the Lord to help grow and mature him. Even Job saw that that wasn't right. Although he is perplexed about so much else. So let me ask you, have you ever been unjustly accused of something? Have you ever been accused of something maybe justly but dealt with in an unjust fashion? Let me, let me tell you something. Those of you who know me, this doesn't go well for me. Like if you, you come at me and it's unjust, I am like a, a wild animal. And I cannot rest until it's dealt with. My wife will tell you, I can't, anything that is unjust, like I, I just can't deal with injustice, especially when it's, when it's on me. I can deal with it when it's in Syria. I can live with that. I can sleep at night. But I cannot deal with it when it comes upon me, just like you. When it's closer to home, we all get wilder, don't we? 
And so if you've tasted of this, you know how perplexed Job is. You know, now you can get a sense of the gravitas for why Job is pushing so hard, why there will be so many speeches, why he will not relent until the Lord himself shows up. How did it make you feel to be unjustly accused? It's devastating, isn't it? Because it, it takes away some part of your humanity. It robs you of the truth of Psalm 8, doesn't it? How did you respond? How did you respond to being unjustly accused? Did you meet injustice with injustice? Because I have. I am guilty. Just as I think we probably all are at times. So what this does is this helps us understand Job's visceralness, doesn't it? Let's turn back to the text. Now Job is going to turn from Eliphaz. Now he's going to turn to the Lord his God. And his anger is going to kind of begin to rupture out. Listen at verses 1 through 10. Has not man a hard service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand, like a slave who longs for the shadows, and like a hired hand who looks for his wages? So I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lay down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long, and I am full of tossing till the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does, he play, does his place know him any more. Job is articulating the truth of Ecclesiastes. For those of you who would like to do a little bit of a deeper study, it is an interesting thing to read Ecclesiastes along with Job. You will see many crossover patterns within the two books. Note both books' conclusions. But to fear the Lord your God is the most important thing of all. So Job is angry at what appears to him to be the meaningless of life, meaninglessness of life. Listen to what he says and tell me if you haven't been here. He says, the days are going faster than a weaver's shuttle. It seems like everything is just rushing past me and then the night comes and everything grinds to a halt. See, we can stay busy during the day and kind of away from it, but when the night comes, then the quiet and then the voice begins. The challenge the struggle. He says, I toss and I turn all night long and wonder, when will the night end? So he is caught in this world of both rapid flow out and then grinding halt and suffering. Think about that for a second, the twin peaks of those things and how it creates a meaninglessness to life. And Job says, it's as if we're slaves. We're just hired hands. Is this our lot? Is this Psalm 8? What is man that you are so mindful of him that you would enslave him? Should Job be angry if this is true of what God created us for? Is the image bearing for us to live in futility? 
No, that is not good. We should be angry if things are meaningless. If as we look at our lives, we can find no meaning and we can find no purchase in the the foundation which Christ has laid, then we should in anger rise up and say, where is it? And God would be pleased because he says, now you're paying attention. You were not created for Ecclesiastes. You were not created for things to just rise and fall and have no meaning and for the years to blow by and for you to be in a marriage that is sucked of all life and is void of any sort of love or cherishedness. You should not as parents feel as if you have wasted your time and made mistakes that cannot be undone in the gospel. You should not look upon your life and think that it is meaningless. God says, be angry if that is true and seek a better way. Amen? I'm thankful that the Lord our God says, no, get angry at that kind of stuff. Get angry when your neighbor's life is meaningless. Get angry when there's a meaninglessness in an entire community of people. Go there and share the truth of the gospel and tell them, I have not forgotten nor forsaken them. Be angry when others render people as if they were not people. So tell me, is this not the fundamental thing in Syria? Is this not the fundamental thing with Planned Parenthood? Is this not the fundamental thing with the poor? Is this not the fundamental thing with the lonely? Is this not the fundamental thing with the aged that we have forgotten and reduced to prisoners in prison camps? This is a fundamental struggle that we ought to be engaged in. We ought to be awake enough and question like Habakkuk, and question like Job. We ought to know enough of the truth that it would make us angry that anyone would be rendered to this. Amen? This is where our social justice should rise. This is where our understanding of the gospel should rise. This is where Psalm 8 becomes most gloriously true. Job According to Francis I. Anderson, Old Testament scholar, he says, Job makes his way to God with prayers that are sobs. Narrow and inhuman is the religion that bans weeping from the vocabulary of prayer. Let me read that again. Narrow and inhuman is the religion that bans weeping from the vocabulary of prayer. So Job in his anguish does not curb his speech, but breaks out into even greater vehemence. So you tell me what renders life meaningless. What maybe has rendered life meaningless for you as you're here this morning? Maybe as you sit here this morning, you're struggling to wonder what is the point of any of this? I don't ask that lightly, and I don't think it's going to be answered with just a few pithy statements or quotes. It's not. That's something that must be untangled in counsel, and it must be untangled in love, and it must be untangled in community, and it must be untangled through the truth of God's Word. The whole truth, not some part. And we must consider what is it that does render life meaningless, and what really gives our life meaning? What actually makes us alive? Think about what Christ says, and I'm so overwhelmed by this and still wrestling. What does it really mean when he says, I came to give you life more abundant? No, he didn't say, I came so that you could work 80 hours a week and never see your kids and be divorced by the time you're an empty nester. That's not what he said he came to do. 
He did not say that he came so that you could be uh, gripped in darkness most of your days, a slave to your own biochemistry. He did not say that he came so that we could be persecuted by our own brothers and sisters. It's not why he came. He came to give us life more abundant, meaning more abundant, beauty more abundant, joy more abundant. That doesn't mean that's not a false or easy joy because sometimes it requires anger to get there. Anger at the meaninglessness, anger at the fact that it's, for some reason there's this giant gap. I'm also overwhelmed by how often in the Old Testament it talks about God's presence brings life. And yet so often, we the church are purveyors of death. So Job is angry at the meaninglessness, and he goes on. Let's pick it back up in verse 11. We'll read through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and you terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me? nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit. If I sin, what did I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have, you become, have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I will not be. You don't see that printed on your Christian calendar as you flip through it, right? <laughs> you don't see that on the old bumper sticker and it shouldn't be there <laughs> this is for a particular time notice Job's invective is increasing notice what he says he says am I, am I a sea monster am I chaos incarnate that I threaten you God what is my pitifulness as compared to your vastness Remember, part of Eliphaz's issue is that he saw God as utterly transcendent. Job is making the same mistake. Is it sin to make a mistake and see God as overly transcendent? No, actually it is not. That's just ignorance that can be corrected. But Job is saying, am I such chaos that you must set watch over me? Am I Leviathan? Then he goes on, if you remember, he says, why, why would my sin affect you? Have any of you ever said that? as you struggle with your secret sin that you think affects no one else, the thing that you do in darkness that you think has no impact on your wife or your husband or your family, that you have no idea what it's growing, what it's tending in your garden, the garden of your heart that you someday will not be able to control. Have you said this to try to get out from under God's correction? Have you said this to try to get away from the loving, redeeming discipline of the Lord? We all have. I do it almost as fast as I sin. I immediately kind of stop, start trying to reconcile it myself so that the Lord doesn't have to. Hopefully he's busy in India. 
Job is trying to argue, why are you even paying attention to me? Notice his theology of the character of God. He's saying, when you pay attention to people, they suffer. Wait, hold on. What? Lord, when you're present, that means you've come to judge, right? Isn't that why God shows up? To lay the wood, to lay the axe to the root of the tree. Isn't that why Jesus came? To make us suffer and remind us what trash we are? No. Jesus came to say, Psalm 8 is true. I've come for you. I've come for you so that you would no longer be enemies but be sons and daughters of the Most High God. I have come for you so that you would no longer be cut off. I have come for you so that you could come near to the Lord your God and it would no longer harm you, that you could enjoy his holiness, that you could enjoy his mercy, that you could enjoy his grace and his love. That's not just a New Testament concept, by the way. It is all throughout the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis 3.15. Actually, beginning in Genesis 1. And so the Lord's presence is not meant to be harmful to us. The Lord's presence is meant to be of great comfort to we who are his children. To those who don't know him, yes, it is a terrifying thing to find oneself in the hands of an angry God. But how gracious is he to tarry and continue to tell you that he loves you and to continue to say to you while there is breath in your lungs, you are Psalm 8. You mean and matter to me. I have come for you to give you life more abundant, not judgment in greater measure. So Job is wrestling with this transcendent God. He is wrestling with the fact that it seems that God's attention has been turned on him. Think about his religion that we read about at the beginning of chapter one. He gave extra sacrifices just to kind of keep God away. What do we need to do to just keep God at bay? That's the wrong view of the Lord his God. This is why God will show up in the whirlwind and say to him, Job, I am the God who's drawn near. And notice what happens to Job. He, it kills him right on the spot, doesn't it? Blows him into a thousand pieces. No. When God draws near, Job becomes more human than he's ever become and more valued and treasured than he's ever become. And he becomes an ambassador of reconciliation who will offer the sacrifice on behalf of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. God shows up to save them all. Amen. So Job is tangled up in this wrong view of sin and the wrong view of God and wrong view of death. Job thinks that death is going to cut him off from the Lord his God. What does the psalmist say? Even in Sheol you are there. For those of you who don't know, Sheol's the grave in Hebrew. So even in the grave, the Lord is there. You're never cut off from his presence. And so, Job is caught in his anger, and yet he is bringing it to the Lord. That is what Job does right. Job doesn't turn to a different religion to try to find a better way. Job doesn't turn to false counselors, Buddhism, New Age theology. He doesn't turn to anything else. He keeps coming back to the Lord and saying, this doesn't seem to fit. Meaningless doesn't make sense in light of who we ought to be. And God appreciates the worship that is in his anger. Listen to what Krish Kandia, 
um, modern pastor in England says in his book, Paradoxology. He's speaking of this moment in Job. He says, it seems counterintuitive initially, but when we ask the question why, we actually reveal that we believe there is a God and not just any God who could and should be powerful enough to make things different and who might care enough to want to both answer our question and make things better. The question why reveals that none of us can escape the paradox that we believe in a powerful and loving God, albeit we don't understand how we can reconcile this with a broken world replete with injustice and suffering. See, even by asking why, we are suggesting that someone can answer. Otherwise, you, I, all of us are caught in a web of meaninglessness that we will never untangle from. I have read the Analects of Confucius. I have read the Bhagavad Gita. I have read the Vedas. I have read all of these texts, and there's a lot of wisdom in them. But do you know how long I kept that wisdom as a Zen Christian or whatever the heck I was at one time? About 15 minutes at best. And that was on a really, really good day. I never could. You, no, no, we, it's, it's ridiculous to think that we could live without something supernatural lifting us up without something supernatural imbuing and, and granting us this ability. It's insanity. I am most aware of it as a husband and a father, as you are too. How many of you, because we, we want you to teach a class, um, are perfect husbands or wives? Sours? How many of you are perfect parents? You just, man, you're killing it. You, you really should write books uh, and make millions because you just, you're so, you're, you're even overwhelmed with how amazing you are. It just blows you away. When you look at your kids, you're like, man, I should have more of these. Populate the world. I am killing it out here. Uh, no hands on that one either. How many of you children are saying, I, I, they should take video of me as a child, the honor that I give to my mother and father. I am, there, there should be people who, this should be on Netflix, it should be a series. This is amazing. Well, all that imperfection in here, what hope do we have? What keeps us from descending into the abyss of meaninglessness, if not the gospel? if not the person in the work of Jesus Christ. Have you ever said to the Lord, leave me alone? Just leave me alone. How gracious was he not to answer your prayer? How gracious was he to not take his hand off of you and turn you over in toto to your darkness? I have, my wife can tell you for years, said, take the mantle off of me. Take it off. I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to lead other sinners. I don't want to lead other saints. I don't want to do this. And it had nothing to do with his glory and how I might mess it up. It had everything to do with my own selfishness and unwillingness and want to not hurt. I begged God to leave me alone, and I even did a few things that I thought, this ought to take care of it. This ought to turn the Father's face away. And it didn't. The Lord has been so incredibly gracious to me. And I have grown and matured in the midst of that grand suffering that I brought by my own hand and my own bad theology. And the Lord has been so, so gracious to me. And I know that he will be to you too. It's not just because I'm special because I can guarantee you that ain't it.
And you may not be able to see it today, and you may not even be able to see it tomorrow, but you hold tight. And talk, let other people in to where you're hurting. Let those who are further along than you speak back in and tell you, you can make it. Don't be long on diagnosis and short on cure. So, what do we learn from Job 6 and 7? One, we should humbly defend our integrity when it's been unjustly attacked. Notice the key word. What's the key word? Humbly. How often do we as Reformed folk get charged, oh yeah, Reformed theology equals humility. It ought to, given the T and the U and the L and the I and the P and all the rest of it. But for some reason, and I'm not, this ain't just, I'm not just shooting at you here. It's my own eye. I'm trying to remove the plank. So how often do we struggle? But we ought to humbly defend our integrity and be open to rebuke when we have been justly challenged. Second, a meaningful and brief view of life should make us angry. When people are caught in meaninglessness, we should get angry. When we are caught in Ecclesiastes before the end of the chapter, we should get angry. Third, meaningless suffering should also make us angry and cause us to ask the question, why? See, the problem with the church is we're afraid if we ask these kind of questions, we're going to lose people who tithe. We never had them in the first place. And we ought to ask these kind of questions, and it's where the actual healing might begin if we could actually be honest. Actually, actual people who don't believe in Jesus might would say, hey, I, I kind of want to hear what those folks have to say. Fourth, our anger evidence is a belief in the God who can actually redeem and reconcile. Bringing it full circle, anger should be part of our worship. In this broken and fallen world, if you're not, if you can look at this world and it doesn't stir something in you, as I heard a guy say, your wick is wet. No fire can be lit. So we should be a people who are angry at the fallenness of the world and seeking to bring about redemption and reconciliation for those who are caught in its web and its meaninglessness instead of attacking those who are actually the ones who are hurting. Woe be unto us if we are the ones who shoot our wounded. As we close out this morning, we will have a prayer group in the back corner. And there will be three or four people back there that are, are, their sole purpose is to pray for you. And if you need prayer, and I know there's some of you in here who do, don't leave today. Don't, don't, don't be weirded out and think, I, just, I don't want, this is weird. Receive what you need in a time of trouble. If you're hurting, let these folks pray for you. If I can pray for you, you can grab any of us, actually. But we do have a designated prayer group. I'll be up front. If there's anything that we can do for you today, please come. And don't let another day of meaningless kind of wash over you without some sort of speaking into that. If there's anything that we can do for you throughout the week, that's what we're available for. I know tomorrow's Labor Day. I don't practice it because of what it stands for. I don't take a day off because 14 people got beat to death. It's weird. Uh, and the rest of them get rewarded because they didn't strike, railroad strike. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not as adamant about that as it sounds. That was sarcasm. Uh, <laughs> I'll work half a day, just, just middle ground. I'm going to take the middle way. Uh, but we're available, and we want to love you well, the elders, the deacons. If you need something, you can't do not say, I don't want to bother them. I don't want to saddle them with this. No, it's what we're here for. 
And yes, we've probably heard some stuff a thousand times. You might sneak one in there that I haven't heard before. It'd be novel, but maybe. And so we're here to love you and work through this. And so, so access that. We're not just professionals that keep a curious distance from you. We do love you and we want to know so that we can help you. I'm going to close us in prayer. We got one more song that I hope will be encouraging to us. And so uh, if you would, let's stand as we pray together. And then we'll give, after the song, the benediction.